Cases EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we have Justin Morgenstern on the evidence for debridement of burn blisters. Now, while every burn surgeon I've ever talked to recommends debridement of all but the smallest, tiny little burn blisters, the evidence is, well, you'll hear. A few months ago, there was a great episode of EM Cases about burns. And if you haven't heard it yet, just stop listening to me and go find it. It was great. But there was one point that I took issue with, and I wanted to discuss it here. Now, on the podcast, they recommend that we should debride blisters. Now, this has always been a controversial topic, and you'll find different opinions from different experts. And I just wanted to present a different opinion from that of our guest experts. And the point isn't to confuse you with different options. Honestly, there isn't great evidence here. But the best thing about evidence-based medicine is that once you've heard the data, once you know the trials, you don't have to rely on the experts. You don't have to take my word for it, and you don't have to take Dr. Fish's or Dr. Ivankovic's word. You can make up your own mind for yourself. So here are the trials. First, we have Gimbel in 1957. This trial is awful from an ethics standpoint. They took medical students and actually burned them on purpose, 16 burns across the abdomen on every student. And then once the blisters were formed, they either left them alone or they aspirated them or they debrided them. And the only group that had 100% healing by 14 days was the group that had the blisters left alone. Now, this is from 1957, so the data presented is a little bit limited, but it looks like both aspiration and debridement led to slower healing. The next is basically a case report. It's Forage in 1962. A 14-year-old girl had bad burns to both of her legs because a paraffin stove exploded, and they decided to use her legs as their own controls, so they left the blisters intact on the right leg, and they debrided the left leg. And the right leg the one that the blisters were left intact on, did better on all accounts. Less pain, faster healing, and better cosmetic outcomes after a year. Now, who knows if the legs had the exact same amount of burn at the outset, and of course this is a single patient, but again, the results were better with no debridement. Next, we have Swain from 1987. And here they look at 316 patients, and they treated them based on the week that they arrived to either debridement, aspiration, or leaving blisters intact. Now, the trial wasn't blinded, so the evidence isn't perfect. And their main focus was on the rate of bacterial colonization, and it was way higher in the aspiration and debridement group. It was 70% with aspiration, 76% with debridement, and just 14% if you left the blisters alone. Now, that's just colonization, not infection. And they don't report the actual rate of infection, so it's hard to know if these numbers matter. But there clearly isn't a benefit from debridement. Oh, and also, pain was higher with the Bryman. So really, that's that's it. That's all that we have. There is one other study, Roe from 2018, that just compared aspiration to debridement. So there wasn't a control group uh, where you ha- they had nothing. So the trial doesn't help us a lot. But overall, there wasn't much of a difference. But scarring did seem to be worse with debridement. So once again, debridement looks a little bit worse. And that's all the evidence we have. So you can understand why you're going to hear so many different opinions. When there's a vacuum of evidence, experts can say whatever they want. And I don't want to discount the expertise of our burn specialists. Our guest experts have a lot more experience managing burns than, than I do. However, there is no clinical data supporting debridement. 
the tiny amount of evidence that we have suggests that, if anything, debridement is harmful. So with that in mind, I think you got to consider other factors. Debridement causes more pain. Frequently, we're talking about children, so now we've got to talk about the risks of procedural sedation and the departmental issues of tying up a bed while we're waiting to get that sedation done. There isn't strong evidence against debridement, so if you can get it done quickly without hurting your patients and you think it's a good idea, by all means, go for it. But if you're going to ask me to cause pain and to cause flow problems in my department by adding potentially unnecessary extra sedations, I think you need to provide some evidence. And I think the onus is on the people making the claim that this helps. So personally, I will not be debriding burns until that trial comes along, until we have that evidence. And come on, this should be a really easy RCT to accomplish. Burns are common and there's clearly equipoise. We need to spend less time debating the issue with no data at all and more time actually getting some data. So if you work at a burn center, please just get this study done. In the meantime, Hopefully, knowing this data will help you make better decisions for your patients. Next up, we've got the sister podcast to our brand new blog, ECG Cases, Making Complexes Simple, with ECG guru educator Jesse McLaren. We've already received some great feedback on ECG Cases number one, which is entitled Never Trust the Computer Interpretation, where Jesse goes through seven examples of missed ischemia. It's a 10-minute read on the EM Cases site that's well worth improving your ECG interpretation skills. All right, here's Jesse with his first quick hit on ECG cases. You're working a busy shift in the ED when a nurse hands you an ECG on a patient in triage with chest pain. The first thing you see is a reassuring interpretation, normal ECG. Not nonspecific change or consider early repolarization, but simply normal. Do you really need to take the time to look at the ECG any further? Why even get interrupted with an ECG that the machine calls completely normal? In 2017, a study in academic emergency medicine concluded that, quote, triage ECGs identified by the computer as normal are unlikely to have clinical significance that would change triage care. Eliminating physician review of triage ECGs with a computer interpretation of normal may be a safe way to improve patient care by decreasing physician interruptions, end quote. But this was based on only four months of ECGs at one center with a low incidence of STEMI. This hardly qualifies as a practice-changing recommendation, especially one with such serious consequences. In an era of ED overcrowding, correct ECG interpretation can mean the difference between a patient receiving rapid reperfusion or sitting in the waiting room quietly infarcting their myocardium. Do we really want to leave such an important decision up to a computer algorithm known for inaccuracy? We all know not to trust the automated interpretation, but how is it possible for it to be so wrong as to call ischemia normal? First of all, the machine interprets each ECG in isolation, with no reference to previous ones. This means it can miss dynamic ischemic changes, including pseudo-normalization. Secondly, the machine focuses on ST-segment amplitude, but can miss ischemic morphology, like convex ST-segments, hyperacute T-waves, or biphasic T-waves. And the third reason why machines can miss ischemia is that they are based on STEMI criteria, which has a limited sensitivity for acute coronary occlusion. 
so it can miss new ST depression and AVL, which is highly specific for inferior MI, as discussed in the recent EMKs of the post on chest pain, or it can miss terminal QRS distortion and V2 and V3, which is the lack of an S or a J wave, which is highly specific for LAD occlusion. To see examples of these, visit the ECG Cases blog on EM Cases, where I share ECGs from seven patients who presented with chest pain. All triage ECGs were labeled normal, but see if you can spot these schema changes. This year, the Journal of Electrocardiology published a response to the 2017 study on triage ECGs, and I'll end with the author's conclusions. Physicians should take the steps to develop their skills in detecting subtle signs of myocardial ischemia, and computerized interpretation algorithms should state no abnormalities detected rather than normal ECG. This combined approach is a more effective and durable way to benefit vulnerable patients and distracted physicians than simply trusting the computer's assessment of normal. When I get shown an ECG in the ED, I like to cover up the computer interpretation so that it doesn't bias my interpretation. Next up, we've got Aaron Seal explaining why the six Ps of compartment syndrome are totally unreliable in suspecting the diagnosis. Good day, folks. Aaron Seal here with another quick hits ortho case. And today we're going to chat about a relatively rare diagnosis that's commonly missed, that's limb-threatening, with lots of pitfalls in in our understanding of it as eMERGE physicians, and that's acute compartment syndrome. So in keeping again with the quick hits theme, uh, we'll give you a case. It's a 90-year-old lady who twists her her leg. Uh, She has a tib-fib fracture that's closed. It's quite painful. And recalling that the lower leg is the most common place in acute compartment syndrome, it's reasonable that you think about that. So you think about the five Ps, you think about reaching for the striker needle, so you have a number that you can tell the orthopedic surgeon before you call them for this case. So a few pitfalls in, in acute compartment syndrome we should chat about. Some brief pathophysiology. So compartment syndrome is a, acute compartment syndrome is an acute rise in the pressure of an anatomic compartment. What does the increased pressure do? It leads to decreased capillary perfusion, which causes ischemia, which causes increased swelling, increased pressure, decreased perfusion muscle necrosis, nerve necrosis, etc. So acute compartment syndrome can certainly be limb-threatening and if infection sets in, life-threatening. So let's talk about some of the epidemiology. 70% of cases of acute compartment syndrome are related to an acute fracture. Uh, 30% are not, therefore. So what does that mean? That includes like, crush injuries. It could be soft tissue infections. It could be extravasation of IV fluids. Uh, a dressing or a cast that's put on too tightly. So you can get an external compartment syndrome. can certainly be a, a cause of it. High pressure injection injuries are very high risk of it. So just keep that in mind. Let's talk about age groups. So older adults, less likely to get compartment syndrome than younger adults. And that's because as we age, our muscle mass decreases. Therefore, there's more volume or more space available in a compartment. Some people also have this myth, uh, have this belief in eMERGE that if, if a fracture is open, it's basically releasing the fascia. And that's a real myth as well, because if you've ever seen a patient who has a, a fasciotomy done for compartment syndrome, they open that compartment from from like the very proximal end of it to the distal end. And certainly, you know, most open fractures do not release of a compartment in the same way that a, a compartment fasciotomy would. So so don't dismiss the possibility of, of compartment syndrome because it's an open fracture. Let's chat about these five Ps that we, we all have to learn for our exams. So pain, paresthesias, paralysis, pulselessness, pallor. There are variations of the five Ps. Some say six Ps, some say seven Ps. But 
really the P that you have to worry about is pain out of proportion. That's most important. Uh, and then they may start to get some progressive paresthesias. But if you if you if you talk yourself out of it because you feel a pulse or because the patient can move their toes, that's a real red flag. It's a real problem if we do that because that's a very late sign. Pulselessness, paralysis are extremely late signs in compartment syndrome. And essentially, uh, if there's if they've already set in, it's probably too late to save the limb. So don't think that a neurovascular assessment is the same thing as compartment syndrome assessment. If you're feeling for compartments, you just you put your hands on their on their compartments and you feel you passively move their limb, and you see that if you cause some stretch of it of the muscles that are involved, passive stretching of it will increase the pain in compartment syndrome. But it's pain out of proportion. That's a real highlight. And and don't talk yourself out of it because of the other piece. The other thing I'd tell you, I'd warn you about is reaching for the striker needle. So A, using one of these striker needles, it's it's fairly complicated. If you haven't done it a lot, it's hard. Uh, There are like eight different steps. You've got to zero it properly. You have to make sure you're doing it properly because there's a lot of uh, inter-observer variability in the number that you get. Number two, where do you put the needle? So you better be, you know, if you're going to use it in the lower leg, you should be aware that there are four compartments in the lower leg, and you need to know that your needle is in the right place, number one. And then number two, the pressure readings are actually variable at different levels in the compartment. So you, you may need multiple pokes in the compartment. So that's another concern. Do you have it in the right place? And then number three, what does the number actually mean? It's, it's a rather random number what we decide uh, is compartment syndrome. So they talk about it being a, an absolute pressure of 30. Well, that's the classic definition. More and more, you're hearing about this delta P, the difference between the diastolic pressure and the compartment pressure. And if that's less than 30, that's indicative of a compartment pressure. But a uh, orthopedic surgeons were doing a, they did a study, patients who had tib-fib fractures, they checked their pressures in their leg. And none of these patients had symptoms of or developed a compartment syndrome. And if you used an absolute pressure of 30, then 62% of these patients would have been diagnosed with compartment syndrome based on the number they got from the striker needle. And if you use delta P as the number, then 25% of the patients would have been diagnosed with compartment syndrome. But none of them actually had it. So patients had uh, numbers up in their 60s, uh, pressures in the 60s even, and they never developed it. So what does the number even mean? That's a problem. That's why most surgeons, if you tell them someone has compartment syndrome, they don't ask what the pressure is. They just they, they come in to assess the patient because it's an orthopedic emergency, and most orthopedic surgeons won't actually reach for the needle. Uh, the time the needle is super valuable is, of course, if a patient's in, is comatose. So as a little pearl going forward, as you assess MSK patients in the emergency department, Instead of writing neurovascular intact, add a C in front of it. So make it compartments neurovascular intact, and you're feeling normal all the time. There is great value in feeling normal. And then when something is abnormal, your hands will actually tell you sometimes before you have a chance to process it. The same way that you feel a kid's neck and you go, that feels abnormal. The same way you put your hand on someone's belly and you say, hey, they've got like peritoneal signs. These things you'll start to recognize as you start to feel compartments. And then you'll make diagnoses more accurately. You won't dismiss them because they can move their toes or because their pulses are intact because we know now those are very late signs. And the five Ps are useful for oral exams, but they're really not useful at the bedside in that way. If you think someone has compartment syndrome, you know, give them something for pain and and serial assessments. Go back and see them 15, 20 minutes, half an hour later and see how they're feeling. That's a valuable test to do. Uh, if you feel compelled that you really want to reach for a device, 
then I'd suggest the best device to reach for, uh, if you think someone has compartment syndrome, is actually the telephone to call the orthopedic surgeon and, and not a striker needle because it's fraught with all kinds of dangers if we don't use them properly. So I hope these pearls and pitfalls have been helpful for you in, in thinking about acute compartment syndrome. Thanks again to Anton for the opportunity, and I look forward to the next installment, folks. All the best. Nicely summarized, Dr. Ciel. All right. Now we've got some PEM for you. Thanks so much to Natalie May for her fantastic PEM contributions to EM Quick Hits. For the next little while, we've got Sarah Reed from Trio in Ottawa, who you may remember from our main episode podcast on pediatric fever and sepsis, as well as DKA. She's going to hit us with a summary of her incredible talk from EMU last May on pediatric asthma. There's a bunch of stuff that I learned from this one, especially how long to give inhaled steroids for after they leave the department and how incredibly valuable the PRAM score is. Take it away, Sarah. So our treatments for asthma are really effective. And there are definitely some kids who have severe asthma that's difficult to treat. But really, in general, uncontrolled asthma is the result of under-recognition, under-treatment, under-education, and under-compliance. So we're going to go over five common pitfalls around the treatment of pediatric asthma and what we can do to raise our game. So the first is differentiating bronchiolitis from asthma. And it can definitely be really hard to tell the difference between these two in the wintertime when you're dealing with a small kid. But essentially, the most helpful features that are going to help you differentiate are if the patient is either under or over 12 months and whether there's a response to Ventolin. So if you have a baby who's under 12 months, it's most likely going to be bronchiolitis. There are some rare infants with asthma, but that's pretty uncommon. If you have a baby over 12 months, you could still be dealing with either. So do a trial of Ventolin and document a pre and post assessment. If the work of breathing and wheezing improves post Ventolin, you're dealing with an early asthmatic. And if there's no improvement, it's more likely to be bronchiolitis and you need to shift to supportive care. The second pitfall is not making this diagnosis in preschoolers. And that's one of the big issues for these small kids who can't do spirometry until they're about six years of age. We know that preschoolers have the highest rate of eMERGE visits and admissions for asthma, and that probably undertreated asthma in these little kids sets them up for chronic lung disease later in life. So in 2015, the Canadian Pediatric Society published a position statement on the approach to asthma in preschoolers. And the bottom line is that if you have a kid, a little kid under the age of five, who's had two or more episodes of obstruction, so that means wheezing, and reversibility, so that means a response to Ventolin, that's enough to make the diagnosis of asthma. The third pitfall is not using the PRAM score. So we know that when we're treating asthma, the severity of the presentation dictates treatment. So the mild asthma patient gets their Ventolin and they can probably just go home. The moderate patient gets a bit more Ventolin, so maybe three doses over the first hour, they get an oral steroid. You observe them for a while, they might need some more Ventolin, but that's essentially all you need to do for them. And then we have the severe group who are going to get those three back-to-backs of Ventolin and Atrovent. They might need extra oxygen, they might, they'll definitely get a PO steroid, and they might even need IV MagSol for even an IV steroid. The PRAM score is a validated score out of 12, the Pediatric Respiratory Assessment Measure, and it uses five clinical parameters that you can assess at the bedside. So the oxygen saturation, supersternal retractions, scaling contractions, air entry, and wheezing. And the only one you're probably not doing routinely is the scaling contraction. 
So that just means palpating the lateral neck for muscle contractions. And by the PRAM score, zero to three means mild, four to seven means moderate, and eight to 12 means severe. So we're using this PRAM score all across Canada in all of the children's hospitals. It's recommended by the Lung Association, and it's really, in the last few years, become like the standard of care in the assessment at triage, during their stay in eMERGE. It's going to help you decide if they're responding to therapy, and it's going to help with disposition, either you know who needs to be admitted and who needs who's able to go home. So if you're not using the PRAM score, this, I think, is the single biggest change that you can make in your practice. This standardizes your therapy. It helps in communication. You know, you're talking to the pediatric hospital. You're able to say... This kid came in with a pram of 10 and there's still a seven. This is what I've done. And you know, you're not going to get any pushback. It definitely has been shown in some literature that it lowers the rate of hospitalization for kids and it increases the use of evidence-based medications. There's a free app that's available um, from the Ontario Lung Association for the pram, which links the score that you give the patient to the therapy that, that they need. So that's super helpful. The fourth pitfall is waiting to give the oral steroid. So we have had a Cochrane review from 2000 uh, by Brian Rowe saying that giving steroids within the first hour of presentation reduces time to improvement, time to discharge, and admission rates by 25%. So we need to be giving the oral steroid early. Don't wait to see if the kid responds to the Ventolin. Basically, you need to pram them, decide if they're moderate or severe, and then go ahead and give them the systemic steroid. Because all the kids who present as moderate or severe should get a systemic steroid. And then you can consider it in the mild kids with PRAM scores 0 to 3, if they've had a history of ICU care, if they've been admitted recently, if they've had lots of eMERGE visits, or you get some sense that there's a lot of Ventolin use at home indicating that they have poor control. Traditionally, we've been using five days of prednisone or prednisolone for asthma, but in the last few years, there's been a lot of smaller studies looking at dexamethasone versus prednisone, and there's a recent meta-analysis that basically sort of summarizes everything, telling us that one or two days of dex is just as good as five days of pred, and the kids who get dex have less vomiting in the eMERGE and at home. So basically, most people are using dexamethasone two days. Uh, the Ontario Lung Association has gone with two days of dexamethasone as well. So that's 0.6 mg per kg to a max of 12 milligrams for two days. The last pitfall, I would say, is not giving the child a controller medicine. And that is really one of the most common reasons we see kids in eMERGE is that they're not on an inhaled corticosteroid because they've either never been given one, they've been told to use it PRN with colds, the parents don't know how it works, so have no idea how to do it and are just not and are thus not compliant. So for kids with frequent symptoms, or if they've had one or more moderate or severe asthma exacerbation, the Canadian Pediatric Society, and this is also, there's national and international guidelines about this, they recommend a three-month therapeutic trial with a moderate dose of an inhaled corticosteroid as well as their PRN Ventolin. Basically, you can think about giving the inhaled corticosteroids to kids with either chronicity or severity. So chronicity means they have symptoms more than two days a week or more than eight days a month. And severity means they've had to go to eMERGE with a moderate or severe exacerbation that they were given a systemic steroid for. So in conclusion, I would say asthma responds to salbutamol. So that helps you differentiate those old bronchiolytics from the early asthmatics. And it helps you to make the diagnosis in preschoolers. We should all be using the PRAM score to standardize our assessment and treatment. 
We should give dexamethasone as our PO steroid within the first hour in eMERGE and then for one more day for the kids who have moderate or severe exacerbations. That means their PRAM score is four or more. And we should give an inhaled corticosteroid for three months at discharge for kids with chronic or severe symptoms. So practical, concise, and clear. Dr. Reed will be giving us many more evidence-based peds quick hits in future podcasts. Next up, we've got Petro. Now, there's enough literature out there on working up suspected C-spine injuries to fill a Mack truck. But when it comes to T-spine and L-spine workups, there's not a heck of a lot to go on. Let's hear what wisdom Petro can bring to working up T and L-spine injuries in our trauma patients. Let's talk about thoracic and lumbar fractures and trauma. These are the ugly cousins of the C-spine fracture. C-spine fractures have been the darling of clinical decision rule researchers for over 20 years. But T and L-spine fractures have gotten virtually no attention. And yet, as clinicians, every day we face the decision of whether we should image the T and L-spine following trauma. Starting with a case, a 58-year-old male involved in a high-speed MVC rollover traveling about 100 kilometers an hour was belted, had an LOC, but now he's GCS 15. He's been hemodynamically stable, fast as negative, and a chest and pelvis x-ray are normal. His neuro exam is normal, and he has no CT or L-spine tenderness. He does, however, complain of a moderate amount of mid-T-spine pain. So the question is, should we image this patient? Well, why does it even matter? Not surprisingly, like C-spine fractures, T and L-spine fractures can have significant spinal cord injuries. Importantly, neurologic complications and deterioration are about eight times more likely in cases that are missed or delayed. So let's talk about two main elements key for how we decide whether we should image. One, the mechanism of injury, and two, the physical exam. Starting with number one, surely the mechanism of injury must be helpful, right? Well, a recent review concluded that it wasn't helpful in predicting fractures, unfortunately. However, my opinion, based on experience more than actual formal data, is that the mechanism coupled with the clinical exam is actually pretty reasonable. There is some weak data that the following mechanisms are predictive, or at least high risk, for TNL spine fractures. 1. Falls greater than 5 stairs, or 3 to 4 feet. 2. Crush injuries. 3. MVC rollovers. 4. Unenclosed vehicle crashes, like ATVs. And 5. Pedestrians versus car, especially at high speed. Looking at the other element, how about the utility of the physical exam? Well, it's not as good as we'd hoped either. In a systematic review, the only finding that could help rule in a T-spine or L-spine injury was a palpable spinal deformity. And in my experience, these are very obvious, and I can't really recall seeing one in a patient who also didn't have severe neurologic abnormalities on exam. The presence or absence of spine tenderness really does very little to increase or decrease the probability of a TNL spine fracture. The positive likelihood ratio for spine tenderness is about 3.4, which increases the probability of fracture by 15-20%. to 20%. But interestingly, the negative likelihood ratio is only about 0.57. So what does this mean? Well, it decreases the probability of fracture by about 10 to 15%. But if your pretest probability is 30% and there's no tenderness on exam, then there's still a 15 to 20% chance of fracture, which is pretty high. 
fact, in one study, half the patients with a TRL spine fracture had a normal clinical exam, though fortunately the vast majority didn't actually have clinically significant fractures. When you put the entire physical exam together, it's actually not too bad at ruling out a fracture, though depending on the mechanism as I mentioned, it may really not be enough to omit any imaging. It's important not to disregard either a patient with back pain, but they don't have tenderness on exam. I don't have great data here, but just complaints of substantial back pain, for me, may be sufficient to indicate imaging. I'll also consider the mechanism along with my clinical impression to get an adequate evaluation of the patient to guide those decisions. And I use two other elements. One, is the patient altered? And two, do they have a distracting injury? And if so, then my threshold really does drop to image. Finally, I'll also consider whether I'm imaging the chest and abdomen for another reason. And if I am, it's really no big deal to add TNL spine reformats. So here's how I break it down. Three key decision points. One, is the patient neurologically evaluable or are they too altered? If I can't evaluate them, then I really have a low threshold to image, especially with a risky mechanism. Two, is the clinical examination positive? Meaning, is there tenderness or neurodeficits or complaints of severe back pain? And if yes, then I'll image as well. And three, if the patient is neurologically evaluable and has a negative clinical exam, I will also consider other elements that would increase this patient's risk for fracture. Their age, is it above 60? Is the mechanism severe? Or am I imaging their chest or abdomen for another reason? Speaking of imaging, I don't want to spend too much time on the type of imaging modality because I don't think that this should be too complicated. CT scans really should be the default modality. Someone out there is going to interpret this as any trauma must get a PAN scan all the time. But what I'm talking about are patients with at least a reasonable mechanism or compelling physical exam features not fall from standing and normal physical exam in a 20-year-old. Looking at x-rays, the test characteristics really are quite awful. And my take is that I'm not willing to rely on something that could be wrong up to two-thirds of the time. If you do proceed with x-rays and you see something like a compression fracture with a loss of height greater than 40%, that should signal to you that it's actually a pretty severe injury and that a follow-up CT should be done. But for me, CT is my go-to. It's highly sensitive nearing 100%, but if you're transferring the patient, then by all means have that conversation with your accepting trauma center as it might be preferable to defer imaging. Well, that was a lot. So let's go back to our case and let's use the three decision points. If we remember our patient, he is one, neurologically evaluable. Two, he has a normal physical exam, but this complaint of mid-T-spine back pain is concerning. And three, his mechanism of injury is also quite high risk. So I'd go ahead and image both his TNL spines. When I make this decision, I actually just go ahead and image the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, since it's the same amount of radiation, and we're just adding contrast. Those TNL spines can be built as reformats. So in summary, we must recognize the limitations of our clinical exam. If you're going to image the TNL spine, then just go ahead and image the entire thing. There's a high risk that there's also a secondary injury. X-rays, in my opinion, really don't have much of a role for these patients, particularly if you have at least a low to moderate suspicion for injury. And finally, 
your decision-making should incorporate whether the patient's evaluable or are they too altered. Do they have any clinical exam findings? Is there a high-risk mechanism? Are they over the age of 60? Or do they have any distracting injuries? And together, use these features to guide your decision-making. Because really, it's the best we have. Next up, we've got part two of motivational interviewing. Now, if you haven't already, please listen to part one from Quick Hits number seven. So motivational interviewing comes in really handy when counseling patients to make a change in their life, which is especially beneficial for patients with addictions issues. A bit of good motivational interviewing at the time of an emergency visit related to addictions can make the difference between that patient overdosing to death and starting their path to recovery. Take it away, Dr. Clayman and Dr. Lloyd. On EM Cases Quick Hits Episode 7, Dr. Taryn Lloyd and I discussed how we can use motivational interviewing, an evidence-based counseling technique, to help patients work through ambivalence and empower them to create behavioral change by listening change talk. This is more effective than just telling patients not to do something, which can lead to patient resistance and provider frustration. The basic skills of MI are to use open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summaries. We can also use tools like the readiness ruler. On this episode, Dr. Lloyd is back with me again to demonstrate how you can use MI on your next shift. Welcome back, Dr. Lloyd. Thanks. Let's jump right into how this might work. So, Dr. Clayman, you mentioned when I got here that you were feeling tired. Yeah, I worked until 2 a.m. and didn't get to bed until 4. My kids are up early, so I didn't get a lot of sleep. Yeah. So even though your shift ended at 2 a.m., it seems like it took you at least an hour or two to be able to go to bed. It takes me a little bit of time to unwind after a shift. Instead of going to bed right away, I tend to have a glass of wine, watch TV, have some snacks. By the time I'm done, it's usually pretty late. So that time is pretty valuable for you to decompress after the shift. Exactly. Otherwise, I find it's difficult to sleep. This highlights one of the challenges of working in the eMERGE and how it might affect our overall health. Do you mind if we talk a little bit more about this? Sure. I'd love to feel better in the mornings and be more involved with my kids. It's really important for you to have that quality time with your family. Yeah, and if I'm going to bed late after consuming some alcohol, I'm not going to get a restful sleep. may have a headache or some GI upset the next morning and will be more likely to snap at my family, not to mention the extra calories. Are those extra calories something that you're mindful of? Is that important to you? Yes, I try to lead a healthy lifestyle. That junk food and that extra glass of wine at 3 a.m. seem like they may be unnecessary to you. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it for you to make a change in this area? I'd say it's up there, probably at an 8. Okay, so you have a little bit of doubt, but it's still very important to you. Well, when it was happening here and there, it wasn't a big deal, especially before I had kids. As my career goes on, I don't want to make drinking alone at 3 a.m. a habit. I also don't want to rely on alcohol and snacks to help me unwind in general. On one hand, relaxing is key to a long, successful career, and you want to do it in a healthy way. What are some other things you might be able to do during that period to help you relax? Well, I have a meditation app on my phone that I like. It takes about 10 minutes. I also have always enjoyed reading in bed, but it would be disruptive to my husband if I turned on the lights at 3 a.m. You're right. That is a consideration. What are some ways you might be able to get around that? Two obvious solutions would be to read on the couch downstairs or to read in bed with a headlamp. I guess I could also look into getting an e-reader. Those are some excellent ideas. How confident are you that you could start to take that step on your next shift? I'd put my confidence at an 8. 
okay, why an eight and not, say, a six? I'm usually pretty good at making a change once I've decided to do something. I like the challenge of trying to prove to myself that I can stick to my intentions. I already cut out coffee over a year ago, and I don't really miss it. And I don't feel like I need to cut out alcohol completely, but can probably give it up after those late night shifts. That's great. You're very determined, and you know you can make it happen. After all, you got rid of coffee completely. Say you make this change with the aftershift snack and wine. What are the benefits? Well, I'd feel better in the morning and be more present with my family. It would then help relieve any tension I have with my husband around childcare. If I was less tired, I would also be able to go to the gym earlier and be more focused on whatever work I have to do later in the day. I can tell that you've thought a lot about this, and those are some great motivations to make this change. I know your next late shift is coming up. You have time to get the e-reader. If you did that, do you think you would use it? Yeah, maybe. I do like the physical aspect of holding a book, but I think it would still be disruptive to my husband, even if I used a headlamp. And if I read on the couch downstairs, it's right beside the pantry where we keep the wine, so it'd be really easy to pour a glass. If I had an e-reader, I could lie in my bed comfortably, so maybe it's a great option. I guess if I needed a comforting drink, I could make myself an herbal tea and bring it up with me. That sounds really nice. Maybe I will try that too. You've highlighted that it may be easy to grab that wine instead, but it is your choice to make a tea and go up to bed with the e-reader. You've described really important reasons to do this. Your family, getting that workout in in the morning, eating healthier, more fulfilling foods. Maybe you could try it next shift and let me know how it goes. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Dr. Lloyd. Okay, so this was an example with some things that you can take to use with your patients on shift. Roll with the resistance of the barriers they identify to not change and let the patient do most of the talking. Avoid asking why or telling them what to do and make the motivation the things they've identified as being important to them. Use open-ended questions, reflective listening, affirmations, and summary statements to guide your patient towards the choice they want to make. So you've got some quick hit practice changers for burn debridement, compartment syndrome, never trusting the ECG computer interpretation, motivational interviewing, working up T and L spine fractures, and the latest on pediatric asthma assessment and treatment. There are probably still a few tickets left for the EM Cases course February 2020. Check emergencymedicinecases.com slash courses for details. And after listening to this podcast, help solidify what you've learned by reading the show notes. They've got the key take-home points concisely laid out for you. And going through ECG Cases number one blog to pick up those subtle ischemic changes. Until next time, take it easy.